Acts 9, 1 through 22. Meanwhile, Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. He went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues in Damascus, so that if he found any there who belonged to the way, whether men or women, he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. As he neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting, he replied. Now get up and go into the city, and you will be told what you must do. The men traveling with Saul stood there speechless. They heard the sound but did not see anyone. Saul got up from the ground, but when he opened his eyes, he could see nothing. So they led him by the hand into Damascus. For three days he was blind and did not eat or drink anything. In Damascus, there was a disciple na named Ananias. The Lord called to him in a vision, Ananias, yes, Lord, he answered. The Lord told him, go to the house of Judas on Straight Street and ask for a man from Tarsus named Saul, for he is praying. In a vision, he has seen a man named Ananias come and place his hands on him to restore his sight. Lord, Ananias answered, I have heard many reports about this man and all the harm he has done to your holy people in Jerusalem. And he has come here with authority from the chief priests to arrest all who call on your name. But the Lord said to Ananias, go, this man is my chosen instrument to proclaim my name to the Gentiles and their kings and to the people of Israel. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. Then Ananias went to the house and entered it. Placing his hands on Saul, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road as you were coming here, has sent me so that you may see again and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Immediately, something like scales fell from Saul's eyes, and he could see again. He got up and was baptized, and after taking some food, he regained his strength. Saul spent several days with the disciples in Damascus. At once, he began to preach in the synagogues that Jesus is the Son of God. All those who heard him were astonished and asked, Isn't he the man who raised havoc in Jerusalem among those who call on, it, on this name? And hasn't he come here to take them as prisoners to the chief priests? Yet Saul grew more and more powerful and baffled the Jews living in Damascus by proving that Jesus is the Messiah. Amen. Everybody, you may be seated. Thank you so much. Would you pray with me as we begin today? Spirit of the living God, would you help us find ourselves in this story? In Paul's certainty and conviction, would you show us our own closed circles? In Paul's roadside encounter, would you too witness to us the crucified Jesus standing with those who have been hurt and cast aside? In the fear and the hesitancy of Ananias, would you reveal our own hesitancy and bias? And in the journey and transformation of Paul, would you show us our own possible future? Spirit, meet us today in this room and on the road and at the table in all the places we never expect you to be but where you invariably are meet us amen 
Amen. Well, welcome, everybody. My name is Johnny Morrison. I am one of the pastors here. If you are new, as Heather said, it is so good to have you. We're glad to worship with you. Today, we are wrapping up our series, The Forgotten God, Exploring the Person and Work of the Holy Spirit. We've been in this series since June 5th, Pentecost Sunday, and each week we've been looking at different stories and narratives and ideas about spirit to help us understand what are we talking about, who are we talking about, and what does it mean when Jesus tells us the spirit is coming into the world. And you'll notice that throughout a lot of this series, we have been guided by stories, little narratives, little vignettes that pop up in the book of Acts or that pop up throughout the Old Testament, these little narratives that give us a picture and a window into the Spirit's work. And that's been for a few different reasons. One, it's because that's what the Bible gives us when it comes to talking about Spirit. So we're going to look at what we have to work with. The Bible very rarely gives us like systematic analysis or theological arguments that help us understand who spirit is. And so what we get is these stories, these pictures, these experiences that then we have to dwell in to understand what spirit is up to. So we're looking at those stories for that reason. And then the other reason that we're looking at these stories and have been focused in narrative as opposed to maybe more traditional exposition is that I think, and we've talked about this every week, that one of our biggest issues when it comes to spirit isn't that we don't know good things, and it's not that we don't have good ideas or even good theology about spirit, but for many of us, the reason spirit is difficult to talk about or difficult to live with is that we don't have much of an imagination for spirit. And there's a difference between good ideas and a saturated imagination. There is a difference between knowing the rules to a game and actually beginning to play the game. This summer, my uh, hobby of choice has been fly fishing, which is very, like, Utah pastor of me. Uh, (laughs) I've been doing a lot of fly fishing this summer. I tore my ACL a while ago, so fast things feel more nerve-wracking than ever. So sitting in the water without moving, my speed right now. And... Before I'd ever fly fished, I, like, technically understood how you're supposed to fly fish. Like, I understood the rules of fly fishing, the motion of the pole. I had seen a river runs through it and imagined myself as sad Brad Pitt chasing a fish. So I knew, technically, how to fly fish. But then when I actually went fly fishing, just confession, I've spent much more time untangling lines than I ever remember Brad Pitt doing. I don't know if I just thought with a rod and some water I would be Brad Pitt. That's not been the experience that I have had. But there is a world of difference between seeing a movie, knowing the rules, and actually beginning to practice the thing that we're talking about. And as that's true of fly fishing or any sport we play or any musical instrument that we want to experiment with, there is a difference between reading the rules, though that's important. There's a difference between knowing the technicalities, though that is important, and actually beginning to play the game. It's different from watching someone cast to beginning to cast. And I think this is true of all of life, but it is especially true of faith. We may know the rules of faith, but that does not mean we have found ourselves following Jesus or living life with the Spirit in the real. 
We may know the rules of faith, the good ideas of faith, but just like fly fishing, we've never untangled a line, we've never caught our breath on a tight one, we've never chased a river before, and we've never seen the Spirit show up. We have a lot of ideas, but not always a lot of practice. But what we've seen throughout this series is that Spirit seems less interested in theories than in practice. It seems all throughout these stories that we've been looking at, we're looking at people who have good theories, good ideas, good theology about spirit. They know the rules of the game, so to say. And then when spirit actually shows up and alights on a body, the practice begins to look very different than the rules seems to imply. So that's why we've been looking at these stories. Stories of people actually called to practice who were actually led into the water or to the road or to the table where something surprising and unexpected begins to happen. And today, as we close up this series, looking at spirit stories, we're going to look at one final story. And Meg read us this story to begin with, and it is the story of the Apostle Paul's conversion towards Christianity. And it is a marvelous story, a a fascinating story. It takes place between the end of Acts 7 and the beginning, or throughout Acts chapter 9. And you can follow along in your Bibles if you would like to. It'll also be on the screen. But to help us make sense of the story, I'm going to break it up into three acts. Three acts in the book of Acts. (laughs) Act number one, we're going to look at Paul's pre-conversion story. When he is a young man, a Pharisee, a persecutor, and an inquisitor. And then in Acts chapter 2, or Act 2, we're going to explore Paul's encounter with the Spirit of God on the road to Damascus, what happens, what is revealed in that moment. And then in Act 3, we're going to look at the aftermath of Paul's conversion and the questions it forces all of us to begin to wrestle with. So Act number 1. Paul's pre-conversion story. Well, Paul arrives on the scene in Acts chapter 7, but before we meet Paul in Acts chapter 7, a little biography is probably in order. At this moment in Paul's life, when we are about to meet him, Paul is a bright light and a bright shooting star in the Jewish world around him. We know from his own writings and from his own stories that Paul is a Pharisee. And a Pharisee is an interesting position in the ancient world. Our most modern referent today would probably be a lawyer or a judge. Ancient Israel is founded upon Old Testament Torah, and Torah is like a religious law. And so Pharisees are people who study that law like a Bible scholar, but they also interpret that law and enact that law in the world around them. And so they are like Bible scholar legal theorists, lawyers, and judges. And some of them will sit on councils that will operate like a supreme court or like a regional court. They are the enactors of Israel society. And Paul is a Pharisee, a lawyer, a really good one, too, at this point in his history, it says. In Galatians 1 verse 14, Paul tells us that he was advancing beyond anyone his own age, in his career and in his field. So he's really good at what he is doing. He is really smart, really capable. And the other thing that reveals this to us is not only his own writing, but just like in today's world, 
If you wanted to be a lawyer and you wanted to advance in your legal career, you would probably try to go to the best school you could. And then after school, you would probably try to get the best internships, the best clerks that you could possibly get. And we know that Paul clerks for one of the most famous and most influential rabbis, Pharisees, judges of the ancient world, a man by the name of Gamaliel, who shows up in Scripture. And when he shows up, it says that he is well-respected by everyone. And we know him even historically, that he is a significant and important figure. And this is Paul's clerk, or his judge, that he clerks for. It'd be like clerking for somebody on the Supreme Court. If you clerk for somebody on the Supreme Court, there's a good chance that someday you're going to sit on the Supreme Court. Like, that's kind of the journey that someone has. If you have this kind of important position, you're going to have important positions later. This is Paul as a young man. He's smart. He's educated. He has an important position in the city of Jerusalem. He is advancing beyond anyone his own age. His future is bright, and he's going to be looked to as a leader in his world. So that's a little bit of his biography. And when we first meet Paul, he is in Jerusalem, probably doing work for Gamaliel, this justice on the Jewish Supreme Court, which is called the Sanhedrin. He's probably there clerking for this justice. And we meet Paul because there's a story in Acts chapter 7 of a Christian named Stephen who is brought before the Sanhedrin, this ancient Jewish Supreme Court. They bring this person before them, and they begin to try him as a heretic because he's beginning to teach about Jesus the Messiah, which is a challenge to Old Testament law and a challenge to what people believe and a challenge to those expectations that folks have. And they bring Stephen before the Supreme Court, and they find him guilty. And it's a strange and terrifying and heartbreaking and beautiful moment. Stephen preaches this amazing sermon, gives an amazing argument for why he believes in Jesus, but it only enrages the Supreme Court even more. And it leads to this moment in Acts chapter 7, verse 54. It says this, when the members of the Sanhedrin, this Jewish Supreme Court, heard this, these words of Stephen, they were furious. And they gnashed their teeth at him. But Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, looked up to heaven, saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, look, I see heaven open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. And at this, the Supreme Court covered their ears, yelling at the top of their voices. They all rushed him and dragged him out of the city and began to stone him. And this is where we first meet the Apostle Paul, here called Saul. It says, Meanwhile, the witnesses in this case, they laid their coats at the feet of a young man named Saul while they were stoning Stephen. Stephen prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then he fell on his knees and cried out, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. When he had said this, he fell asleep. And Saul, Paul, approved of their killing him. So our first introduction to the person of Saul, to the character of Saul, comes at this moment at the death of Stephen. And it is a strange thing to read. This bright, young, legal mind is sitting in this moment where the court is executing its justice against Stephen, and it says he approved of Stephen's killing, which that on its own is hard enough to get your mind around. 
But then in chapter 8, verse 3, just a few verses later, it says that this moment is so important to Saul that he begins to destroy the church. That the apostle Paul looks for legal authority, and then he begins to go from house to house, and he drags off both men and women and puts them in prison. We don't know what's happening in Saul, Paul's mind at this moment, but something shifts, something radicalizes in him at the death of Stephen, and he begins to join legally in the persecution of the church. And it's an interesting moment, and it would be a moment that is very easy, a moment in which it is very easy to demonize Paul and the actions that he takes, because what they are are easily evil, like they're bad, they're wrong, and what he does is wrong. But Paul is also very complicated in this moment because everything around him tells him that he's the good guy. Everything around Paul communicates to him that he is in the right. He is an expert in Old Testament law, and based upon his understanding and interpretation of Old Testament law, he has gotten to this place. He looks to the legal scholars, the judges, the Supreme Court, leaders, the politicians, the pastors, the spiritual authorities around him, and they all say, you're in the right. Here's legal authority to go and begin to persecute the church. And so when Paul looks at himself, he probably sees a good guy. Someone whose zeal and passion is rooted in a sense of justice, a sense of righteousness, a sense that this is the right thing to do makes Paul a complicated figure. To him, Christians are a threat. To him, Christians are a violation of God's law. To him, Christians are maybe a threat to the state of Israel and their own hope. Jesus claimed to be king after all, and Rome killed him. So Paul probably believes that he is protecting the people of Israel. Just makes Paul a complicated figure from his own perspective. Paul believes that he is right. The scholar Willie James Jennings, in his commentary on Acts, has this really beautiful way of describing it. He says this, Such a person, like Paul, is a closed circle, relying on the inner coherence of their logic. Their authority confirms their argument, and their argument justifies their actions, and their actions reinforces the appropriateness of their authority. The thing begins to move together. And Jennings goes on to say this, that the disciples of the Lord, the women and men of the way, Christians, have no chance against Saul, Paul. They have no argument, and certainly no authority to thwart his zeal. They are diaspora betrayers who are clear and present danger to Israel. This is how Saul sees them. His rationality demands his vision of justice. Saul believes that he is right. And from his perspective, everything speaks to his justification. And I think this is important just as we look at the story of Saul to reflect on for a moment. I think it's important to reflect on because we are far more likely to be like Saul and Paul in our own lives than we care to admit. It's very rare for us to believe that we are not, at least most of the time, good guys. 
And it's very rare for our own rationality and our own perspectives and our own arguments and our own ideas and our own beliefs and our own convictions and our own sense of righteousness to be disrupted by what we see around us. Paul watches Stephen murdered and it only confirms his own convictions. And I think that's actually more often true of us. That our rationality and our authority and our actions are all pretty self-justifying and it's very difficult to disrupt that. That should lead us to a deep sense of humility and a sense of wariness about the positions and convictions that sometimes we hold with such certainty. So I think it's worth reflecting on our own hearts and our own lives. And it's also worth reflecting, I keep thinking about Paul in this moment when I look at the world around us. And I feel like we look at the world, and this is, I'll just say from my own perspective, that I look at the world and we look at moments that we've had to wrestle with here at Missio over the last handful of weeks. And it can be so easy to feel like the world cannot change or does not change as we look at it. And I imagine that the early Christians are looking at the Apostle Paul thinking quite literally the same thing. Here is a person who systematizes oppression. Here is a person who enacts violence against a marginalized community. Here is a person who is so convinced of their own righteousness, they continue to act out of it. What could we possibly do? What hope could we possibly have? How do you change this person's mind? How do you convince Paul to stop murdering you? And I keep thinking about his story because we'll see his transformation and we'll see his journey in a moment. And this is really challenging to me. This is, again, just reflecting on my own self for this moment. I wonder if I have the imagination to believe that modern Pauls can change. I don't know. I just feel like I have to confess that. I did a this, I wrote my dissertation when I was doing my doctoral program basically on changing leadership structures. And I got to the very end of it. And you're supposed to like give your conclusion to the end of it. And it was like, how do things change? And I was like, I don't know. <laughs> Three years, bunch of money, who knows? <laughs> Worth it. Um, no, and the, the, literally, I mean, I had some things. I, there was some stuff in there. But the primary thing that I got to the end of it was, is this, I was like, I think the Spirit has to show up. It was my dissertation research here at Missio and over the last handful of years that really changed my own theology of Spirit because I got to the end of this journey of things that you're like, how do you change something? How do you convince Paul to see Stephen? Like, how do you do this work? And I was like, I don't no, other than I just hope the Spirit shows up because it seems like that's what Paul needs and it seems like that's what this place needs and it seems like that's what my own life needed. And yet, I still often wonder, do I have the imagination to believe that the Spirit could show up and change a Paul or change a Johnny, change an institution or a community? And I imagine that's what the Christians are thinking in this first act of Paul's story. That leads us to act number two. We come back to the journey of Paul, and it's a few years later from this moment where Stephen is killed, and Paul has dedicated himself to the eradication of the Christian church, and he is heading towards the city of Damascus to continue this work. And it says this in chapter 9, Meanwhile, Saul, or Paul, was still breathing out murderous threats 
against Jesus' disciples. And so he went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues in Damascus so that if he found any who belonged to the way, the way of Jesus, whether men or women, he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. So Paul heads to Damascus to continue persecuting, oppressing the church there. And he has legal authority to do it. He's justified by his convictions. He's justified by the legal authorities around him, by the religious systems that support him. And as he is heading to Damascus, well, something very surprising happens in this moment. It says, as he is journeying, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Paul asks in this moment, who are you, Lord? And he hears this answer, I am Jesus, who you are persecuting. Two things happen in this moment that are, again, worth reflecting on and worth sitting on. So as we have said, first, Paul believes and is convinced of his own justification, of his own righteousness, that he is doing God's bidding, and he is heading to Damascus to continue doing what he believes is God's bidding. But then in this moment, something very marvelous happens. Jesus, who is God, gets in the way of Paul's theology and conviction and justification about doing God's business. Jesus gets in the way of Paul's vision. Jesus gets in the way of Paul's understanding. Jesus gets in the way of Paul's violence. And doesn't just stand in the way. Jesus gets in the way and identifies with all those who Paul is hurting the most. Why are you persecuting me? Why are you enacting violence on me? You think you're doing the Lord's bidding, but when you drag someone to jail, you know who take the jail? You take me to jail. You know you think you're doing God's bidding, but when you separate a family, you know who you're separating? Oh, me now. You have to deal with my body. You have to move through me. Jesus gets in the way of Paul's vision, his righteousness, his justice. In this moment, Paul is confronted with the crucified Jesus, who always identifies with the victims of violence. Pastor Brian Zond calls this shock therapy, and I really love this quote from him, and I think it does a good job describing what's happening in this moment. Zond writes, the cross is shock therapy for a world addicted to solving its problems through violence. The cross shocks us into the devastating realizations that our actions, our systems, our violence murdered God. Jesus gets in the way of Paul and says, you see my crucified body? This is your system. And in this moment for Paul, oh man, I cannot, again, it's easy to demonize him and easy to villainize him, but if you think, with Paul, if you get into his imagination that he believes he's right, I cannot imagine how just disrupting this moment would be for him. 
All of a sudden, he has to deal with the fact that Jesus is God. That's the thing he didn't believe before in this moment. That he's identifying with the Lord, the King, the Creator of Israel. He has to deal with the fact that his violence is being enacted against God. And all the things he's done and all the work he's accomplished is now thrown into the air. Everything Paul thought he knew was disrupted in this moment. And it reveals Paul's complicity, it reveals his sin. But that is not the only thing that it does. And I think this is important to reflect on as well. The first thing that Jesus' body does is it reveals who Paul enacts violence against. It challenges him, it reveals something. But this moment, what's also so surprising, because Jesus, who has been crucified and who identifies with the victims of Paul's violence, also knows Paul's name. How fascinating is that? Paul is on the road to Damascus to go do something that is evil, and who is waiting for him on the road? Oh, Jesus is. He is waiting there on the road to confront Paul with his crucified body, to call him by his name. Not simply to reveal something, not simply to shame him, not simply to change something, but to call him home. To give the Paul the same invitation that has been given to us and those around us. Jesus has been waiting for Paul on that road the same way the Spirit was waiting for the Ethiopian eunuch with Philip, the same way the Spirit was waiting for the disciples in the upper room waiting to have an encounter that would unravel something, would challenge something, would upend something, but would also call us home. Now Paul has this encounter, and the text says this. Saul got up from the ground, but when he opened his eyes, he could see nothing. So they led him by the hand into Damascus. For three days he was blind, and he did not eat or drink anything. I feel like Luke is just being a good storyteller in this moment. How interesting is it that Paul, who could only see things from his perspective, now can only see what God shows him? Paul, who believed so deeply, he knew the truth and was convinced of his own righteousness, was convinced of his own options, now can only see what God chooses to show him. And he is dependent on those around him. How interesting. That leads us to act number three. Paul is led into the city of Damascus to wait but before we resolve his story, we are actually introduced to another character named Ananias. And Ananias is a Jesus follower who is living in Damascus. He's one of the people that Paul is coming to arrest. And the Spirit calls to Ananias and says this, Go to the house of Judas on Straight Street and ask for a man from Tarsus named Saul, for he is praying. And in a vision... Saul has seen a man named Ananias come and place his hands on him to restore his sight. Now this leads Ananias to ask a very great question. Um, are you sure about this? 
And then a dialogue begins to happen between Ananias and God because Ananias knows who Saul is. He knows that Saul is a murderer. He knows that Saul is enacting violence against the church. He knows that Saul is coming to arrest him. And so he says to God, "Um, you do know that this dude's a killer, right? Like, you do know what you're sending me into. Also, I can't believe, this is such an amazing moment, that he, God gives to Paul a vision of Ananias and then tells Ananias, he knows what you look like already. <laughs> There's a question that Ananias has to wrestle with in this moment. Ananias knows the truth about Paul. He knows that he's a killer. He knows that he's an agent of religious violence. But Ananias also knows what God has just said. So what does he do? Does Ananias act on the truth that he knows, or does he see what God seems to see? Does he act on the convictions that he knows to be true? Does he act on the history that he has, the stories that have been told about Saul? Does he act on what he knows to be true, or does he see what God seems to see? The story doesn't tell us a lot about Ananias' wrestle, and God does not give him a lot of time to wrestle because he just says, uh, it's time to go. So he goes, and the text says this, Then Ananias went to the house and entered it. And he placed his hands on Saul. He touches the one who was there to murder him, and he says, Brother Saul. What? The Lord who appeared to you on the road as you were coming here has sent me so that you may see again and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Immediately, something like scales fell from Saul's eyes and he could see again. He got up and was baptized, and after taking some food, he regained his strength. And I praise, Paul is filled with the Spirit and scales fall from his eyes and he can see. And now, just as Ananias had an important question to wrestle with, Paul has a question that he has to begin to wrestle with. What do you do now? Your whole world has been turned upside down by this encounter with the crucified body of Jesus on the road and the work of the Spirit. What do you do now? Because he could just go back to his own old life. He knows Ananias' face now. There's probably a prize for turning him in. What does he do in this moment? Well, the text tells us he immediately begins to preach about Jesus. It's so interesting. Everything Paul knows has changed by this encounter. And Paul is somehow totally changed and totally transformed in such a way that he can't at least go back to his old way of living and his old way of seeing. He sees anew now, and he can't shake that vision. So he has to go and begin to proclaim what he sees. And I feel like this is so indicative of what Spirit does throughout the stories we've looked at in this series. Spirit shows up, challenges our thinking, expands our imagination, leads us into encounters with Jesus so that we can see and act like Jesus. 
When the Spirit falls in Pentecost on Acts chapter 2, it's this transforming moment where the disciples have to be confronted about how they see the kingdom of God. When the Spirit comes in Acts chapter 10, it leads Peter into an encounter with a Gentile, someone who is outside of faith, and it forces him to recognize no one is outside of faith. When the Spirit falls in Acts chapter 8, Philip is led into an encounter with an Ethiopian eunuch. Again, someone who in Israel society did not belong, and the Spirit says, you don't get to say who belongs anymore. Each and every moment that spirit shows up, something is unraveled, some idea challenged, our barriers, our walls, our obstacles begin to come down. A new community that looks a little bit more like the crucified body of Jesus begins to come into fruition. Throughout this series, we have not talked about things that are maybe more like traditionally associated with the spirit, like gifts or prophecy those are good things to talk about. If you want, we can talk about them in the glass chapel afterwards in our Q&A. But the reason we didn't talk about those things is I feel like this idea that we're talking about today needs to become preeminent in our minds when we think about what is Spirit doing. Spirit gives gifts, but why does Spirit give gifts? To help us live in a community that looks like Jesus' community, that tears down the barriers that kept people out of leadership or away from power or away from the center of spirit energy. And that's why a gift is given. And why does spirit show up and give people languages they never spoke before? So that people can gather together at the table and speak to one another. So that the barriers that kept people away are removed. So if we're going to talk about any of those other beautiful expressions of spirit, it comes from this place first, that the spirit is here to lead us into Jesus-like community, marked by the crucified body that always identifies with victims of violence, that overcomes the barriers, the obstacles, and the walls that we would use to keep people away. It leads us into life-changing encounters. It removes the scales. That's what Spirit's doing. Disrupting everything. And for Paul, it can't go backwards. He sees anew. That's the question that he has to wrestle with. Ananias has to ask whether or not he'll see with God. Paul has to ask, what now does he do that he sees so differently? And there's another question that is asked in this text, which is, what does the world around Paul do when they see him? Right? Paul was a bright legal mind, advancing beyond those around him, moving up the ladder of his career. What do the people around him do when they see his new way of living, his new conviction, his new beliefs? This dude is the one who was persecuting Christians, and now he says that Jesus is king? What do we do with this guy? They don't like it. In verse 23 of chapter 9, they try to kill him, and then in verse 29, they try to kill him again. It's one chapter, two death threats. Level up. <laughs> That's also what the Spirit does. As the Spirit begins to change how we see, and as the Spirit begins to change our imagination, and as the Spirit confronts the stories, the old orders, the self-justifying rationality that we have held, the Spirit will lead us into the world, and it will force those around us to ask a question. I think in many ways that's what the Spirit is trying to do. Ask us questions and force some new questions into the world around us. Why has this person changed their convictions? Why has this person's story 
chains, not just the story they believe about others, but also the story they believe about themselves. What leads to this kind of courage? What leads to this kind of bravery? What leads to this kind of strange new story? And Spirit wants to lead us into the world, just like Paul, to confront the world with new questions. To force those around us to begin to ask, what happened? To miss you as we conclude today, what do we do with this story and all the stories that we've looked at throughout this series? I think there's a few things that just come to my mind that are maybe just like closing reflective thoughts. I think the first thing that we should be taking away from this series, maybe the first act that we can do, is to pray for an imagination of spirit dependency. I think more than anything, if I could get something into my own heart, and hopefully we could get it into our hearts together, is that we really need the Spirit to show up. We really need the Spirit to show up. We need Spirit to show up to disrupt us, to challenge us, to confront us, to upend the world around us, to change Paul's and Johnny's and everyone in between. We need the Spirit in our lives. We need the Spirit in our world. Because we all need to be confronted again and again with the crucified Jesus who knows us by name, but also identifies with those who have been kicked out and left aside. So would we be a community that prays for a spirit imagination so that when we talk about gifts or we talk about prophecy or we talk about all those other iterations of spirit, that it would come out of this conviction that we are desperate for the spirit to change, to show up, reveal Jesus. And as we pray for that, the second thing I would hope that would come out of this, spirit, this series is a conviction that Spirit is at work. That maybe we haven't seen it before, maybe we haven't been looking before, that we would actually begin to look, though, because Spirit is at work. But I wonder, and maybe this is the other part of this statement, is we believe Spirit is at work, I think often we just have a habit of saying no to where spirit is at work. Because like Paul, pre-conversion, spirit's work doesn't always fit with the way we think things should fit. Or like Ananias, we're really afraid of where spirit will lead us and where spirit will take us because it might confront us with a killer. So not only would be this new imagination that spirit is at work, but it would be a conviction and a commitment on our behalf to begin to look for spirit in places that are often challenging to us. On the road, in the chariot, at the river, at the table of those who don't seem to make any sense together. And so we've seen that this, spirit, this series is that spirit is moving in ways we do not expect. And so would we pray for an imagination, a dependency, and then would we begin to look? And then finally, as we do every single week, Monsieur, we're going to take these convictions and this idea and we're going to bring it to this table. And this is always a good practice for really anything that we're doing, but it's a very good practice for the conversation we're having today because as we gather at this table, we believe that we are gathering around 
the crucified body of Jesus. It calls us by name and identifies with all of those we often don't believe are called by name. And so would you bring that hope, would you bring that prayer of dependency, would you bring that imagination, that prayer of expectation, and would you bring it to this table where Jesus says, I will meet you. And I'll call you by name, but I will also confront us with those we don't believe are called. So in a moment, Missy, we'll gather here. We'll ask the Spirit to meet us there as well. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you for this moment. A moment to see this like really amazing and compelling, beautiful story of the Apostle Paul's conversion. Because we hear it, would you not allow it to just be like a cool narrative that stays away from us, but would it be a story we find ourselves in? Would we be challenged by Paul's conviction and certainty at the beginning of his life? And then would we be unmasked in the reveal of you to the Apostle Paul? Would you call us and speak to our fear and our biases that would stop us from moving towards those who are like Paul or those who are like Ananias? God, would you find us in this story? And maybe more importantly than us finding ourselves in this story, would we discover you? The Spirit who is so surprising. who encounters us in the most unexpected of places, in the most unexpected of ways. God, today, in this place, would you encounter us? Would you show us your body? Call us by name. And show us that we are all called by name and welcomed here. We pray this in your name. Amen. Amen.